Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry, where we tackle social, political, and cultural issues from the perspective of unapologetic guests while highlighting citizen activists doing amazing things throughout the country. On today's episode, you'll hear a conversation with Dr. Sanjay Gupta. He's a neurosurgeon and CNN's chief medical correspondent. We talk about how he got interested in medicine, when he changed his mind on marijuana and why, and what the rolling back of environmental protections means for our planet and our future. I'm Sanjay Gupta, and I am now a believer that marijuana, that cannabis, can really be a medicine that we can get behind. I am sorry, but not sorry. I love the brain. It's one of the reasons I became a neurosurgeon. One of the most fascinating functions of the brain is how it creates memories. We spent a lot of time talking about doing things that can improve our memory, but probably not enough time discussing the things that make our memory worse. I think this is one of, those, um, one of these substances out there that for whatever reason has uh, been demonized, and I think it can be a real medicine. I, I didn't believe in it earlier on in my career, and I've come to the conclusion that for certain conditions, not only can it work, it's the only thing that works. If you just, uh, people would line up in these circles and, and, and laugh, and they would have all these benefits to their body. Their immune system would improve, those stress hormones again would go down. I was looking at this, at what was happening in the United States generally, and realizing that we were the only country in the developed world where life expectancy was falling. was trying to remember how you and I met, and it was from my showrunner. Lauren Gussis. Lauren Gussis from Insatiable, yes. who said, you know, uh, I have a friend that lives in Atlanta because we shoot Insatiable in Atlanta, and he is willing to help you find a place. And, you know, and I was so taken by you and, and your wife and how gracious you were. During that time, <laughs> when I was trying to figure out where I was going to live, where I was going to send the kids to school. So thank you for that. Uh, well, no, it was very much our pleasure, our honor. And, you know, look, we're, we're, we're huge fans. I mean, it was a funny call. Lauren uh, t told me about, you know, could I help somebody uh, that was working with her on the show and stuff. And it was only, I remember near the end that she said, Alyssa Milano. <laughs> and I remember thinking to myself, that, that, that's, that's called bearing the lead in, in journalism. <laughs> right. But, but um, I, I was, I, I've, I've been a fan of yours for a long time. And, you know, and it's funny because you're, you're fans of somebody and, and then you hope, you just hope that when you meet them, that they're going to be the person you think they are, and and you were so sweet, and you were so sweet to me and Rebecca, and uh, uh, 
we're, we're delighted and, and just so thrilled to be able to call you a friend. Well, I feel the same way about you. Thank you so much. So I want to go, I want to kind of start at the beginning with this interview. I, I want to know how you first got interested in medicine. Well, I, in, in terms of um, getting involved with, with medicine, I, you know, nobody in my family is, is a doctor. Uh, so it wasn't one of these family things that is so often is the case. For me, it was, it was interesting, Alyssa. I, um, I, I'm a son of a mathematician. I thought I was going to go into engineering or mathematics. My grandfather, my mom's father, uh, had a stroke when I was about 12 or 13 years old. Mm. And, and we were very close. And I was with him a lot in the hospital. And I spent time sort of seeing how people cared for him and remember thinking to myself that the idea of, of taking care of someone in this way could be a job. I don't think I had, it had ever really occurred to me right. before that. And, uh, you know, being interested in, in science and, and having that experience, I think, sort of uh, really set the, the tone for me early on in life. And I, uh, I applied to medical schools actually out of high school and was accepted to the uh, University of Michigan Medical School through a program that took me straight out of high school. Wow. And I was off to the races, you know, starting around 16 years old. Wow, that's... I didn't even know that could happen. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was, it was really, um, I mean, you know, it's funny. My parents were excited about it primarily because, you know, you save, you know, years of tuition money. That was the primary goal, right. I think, for them. <laughs> I think in some ways, in retrospect, it's too early to, to make these sorts of decisions about your life when you're, a, certainly when you're a teenager, one could argue even in your 20s, it's too early to make these decisions. And, um, you know, there were times when I sort of second guessed myself, but for me in the end, I think it worked out, it worked out well. I, I loved being a doctor. I still love being a doctor. I still consider it my first and truest sort of love. What, so you go into medical school when you're a teenager, right? And, and I can relate to this a little bit because I started working at seven years old. So I often right. say like, I didn't choose this <laughs> path. It chose me. And I, I think you could say the same for yourself. But how do you pick? How do you pick what your focus is going to be? That, that that can be really challenging. Uh, you know, for for um, your your specific specialty, uh, there are people who become brain surgeons, neurosurgeons, who they were sort of preordained to do this, and oftentimes it's because a a you know their mother, their father, or grandparent, somebody was a neurosurgeon, and it's sort of their legacy to 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 carry that mantle. Again, that wasn't the case for me. I, in fact, started medical school thinking that I would go into pediatrics because I, I just, you know, I love kids. I, I always thought the pediatricians were some of the best doctors in the hospital yeah. because there's nothing that galvanizes a team of, of healthcare providers like a child and particularly a child who's in need or a child who's sick. So they, they, they were the doctors who just always wanted to be there. They wanted they didn't want to leave, you know, they wanted to take care of the kids. Um, but I did a neurosurgery rotation uh, at the beginning of my fourth year of medical school. And I sort of fell in love with the brain at that point. I, I really loved the idea uh, that it was complex, that there was going to be things that we were going to continue to learn about the brain right. throughout my entire career. And there was an immediacy when you take care of people uh, using neurosurgery. You know, you can you can get people well 
very very quickly and that was that was very appealing as well but it wasn't it wasn't a a you know years sort of thinking process it was something that i i experienced as through a rotation loved it and decided to pursue it it's interesting because there's so little we really know about the brain and i think it makes sense to want to get into a field where you're like well we can still discover things about this yeah, no, no question. I mean, you know, uh, it, it's funny, a lot of people who are picking surgical subspecialties, you know, they'll think about, so with cardiac surgery, for example, which is, is an, an amazing discipline of surgery, uh, a lot of it really is about bypassing blocked blood vessels right. and critically important, um, but more uh, something that was well established in terms of how we would care for patients who, who needed that sort of operation with the brain, I mean, as you say, there's so much that we still don't know. Even over the last few years, we're now looking at things that are were previously thought of as, as strictly behavioral problems, and not only recognizing that there is a as a, uh, a an actual underpinning in the brain, an area of the brain that's responsible for things, but that's an area of the brain that we can manipulate. So, for example, patients who have refractory depression. Right, you think depression, uh, a mood disorder, something that may be treated with certain types of medications that that focus on serotonin or dopamine or whatever. But is there an area of the brain? Turns out there is an area, area twenty five, that if you stimulate it, you can actually help someone who who could not be helped in any other way. People who were so profoundly depressed that they had become suicidal, and and medications weren't working for them. But we were able to identify an area of the brain that we could manipulate and change. Same thing now with things like obsessive compulsive disorder, even addiction, including, you know, uh, e- eating disorders. So uh, there's all these different areas of the brain that we're still starting to understand. I've been doing this for, you know, 25 years now, and I'm still learning new things about the brain every day. It only weighs three pounds, has a texture like firm jelly and tons of wrinkles. Yet that pine-sized prune of a brain is the most amazing and powerful organ in your entire body. One of the most fascinating functions of the brain is how it creates memories. So how does this all happen? Well, it starts inside the wrinkled part of the brain here called the cortex, where billions of brain cells interconnect in trillions of ways to create these neuron forests. Tiny electric charges move signals like a baby's cry through each neuron to a junction called the synapse, where chemicals called neurotransmitters leap across the gap carrying the cry to more and more neurons, and a memory is born. We find that when someone is asked to sing a song, for example, after a brain injury, how many different parts of the brain get utilized? First, you gotta remember the words to that song, and then you gotta carry those words across from one side of the brain to the other to allow someone to actually begin to say those words. Then you gotta carry a tune. So all that from just asking someone to sing a song, it's pretty remarkable. What do you think are some of the most fascinating things you've learned over the years about how the brain works? I, I, I think that the, uh, the way that the, the brain constantly communicates with itself, I think, is one of the most fascinating things I've learned. It's very, it's very meta, if I can borrow one of my kids' words, you know, when you're talking about something that really describes itself this way. But the brain is like a, is like a, a big city in some ways. And if you look at a big city at any point in time, there are areas of the city that are just bustling with activity. 
Those are the eloquent areas of the brain, the really important areas of the brain. But there's also lots of roads in a city that are critically important, but maybe not always in use. Mm. But if you didn't have those roads, those, those, those eloquent areas of the brain wouldn't be able to, to get their messages out. So I, I think that we've understand, understanding the architecture of the brain, I think, is, is been really interesting. And I think it has all kinds of implications in terms of how we take care of people. But I also think about, you know, really this idea of something like depression being treatable surgically, this idea of obesity being treated surgically, wow. obsessive compulsive disorder. You know, even now you have scientists who are looking at things like autism, um, that, that interplay between what is the environment and what is actually part of our, our code, our, our genetic code, and where those lines really lie, I think is one of the most interesting things with regard to the brain. So after I had my son, Milo, he's going to be eight, I had, I, I suffered from a horrible episode of, of postpartum anxiety. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't, what I had did not fit into like the perfect little box of what postpartum mental illness looks like. You know, I didn't have that thing where I didn't want anything to do with Milo or that I was turning off. I had actually the opposite. I had an obsessive compulsive disorder. I didn't want anyone else to hold him. I would go through his drawers and rearrange his clothes. I mean, it was really, really bad. And all of this was coupled with a panic attack, right? So every single day I would have like that three o'clock in the morning feeding and I would have a horribly severe panic attack. And every time I went in to talk to my doctor, which by the way, was a woman, she made it seem like this was, there was no way that this was postpartum. He was 10 months old at the time. You know, it's too far out. And I felt like I wasn't being listened to. That's interesting. And, you know, and, and it was, and I think it was because it didn't fit into this perfect little box of what it normally looks like. Right. But it really opened my eyes to, as a woman, it seems like, women's health is never a priority or it it takes so much for us to be taken seriously. You know, for instance, there's no distinct test for, say, ovarian cancer. Right. And I was wondering, do you find this to be true? Do you see this shifting at all? Well, I I think, you know, one one thing I'll say just... uh, about the brain before talking about the 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 idea of of women specifically, but you know it's interesting. I I think when and this may sound like a very simple way of looking at it, but I think when we don't have have effective strategies to measure something, where there isn't a, a biomarker or some sort of test or something to measure something, those types of problems or mal- medical maladies tend to get I think marginalized as a result. And I think that that's one of the interesting things that's happened in neuroscience. So if you take depression, for example, again, the idea that you can measure objectively a change in the brain, that the brain is different, that there are areas of the brain that are overly active, not as active, that you're seeing that, and that you can also see someone's response to therapy. You see those changes in the brain happen, right. I think, has, has been really important in terms of 
of, of, of decreasing some of the stigma, frankly, even within the medical profession. Yeah. Because I think what you're describing a little bit, Alyssa, is some of that stigma. You know, it's, it's not real. It doesn't make sense. I will think of reasons why this isn't happening as opposed to searching for objective measures of why it is happening. And, and, and that's changed a lot, I think, in terms of what we've seen with, with uh, the brain and, and, the, and the measurements that we can do. It's interesting with regard to women, you know, so take heart disease, heart disease, biggest killer of Americans in, in the country. Uh, and that means men and women alike. And we typically think of a heart attack and you think of a man. Uh, if a woman were to come into the emergency room with symptoms of, of chest pain or something like that, um, heart attack or heart disease isn't probably the first thing a lot of doctors would think of because it's a woman, even though it's the biggest killer of women as well as men. And I think that that's just some of this ingrained, you know, uh, inertia that, that does not think of women in the same way with the same disease patterns as men. Take Alzheimer's disease. Uh, far more women uh, develop Alzheimer's disease as compared to men. And yet, if you look at the clinical trials that have been done on what is going to become one of the biggest neurodegenerative problems in our country, in the developed world, most of those trials have been done on men. Right. And, and, and you know, you start to think just logically, you don't have to be a scientist to think this way and say, well, first of all, most of the patients are women, so why wouldn't we study women, right? Second of all, uh, mostly this occurs postmenopausal, so is there a clue in there? I mean, hormonal changes yes. uh, can cause all sorts of things. You talk about what happened to you post-pregnancy. Could there be something with regard to our brains overall later on in life? And I would also add that I had my son at 38 and my daughter at 41. Hmm. And almost immediately after I had my daughter, I started to, to have symptoms of menopause. So I wonder if having babies later in life you know, triggers some sort of hormonal response that the body is not, or you're just mentally not prepared for, that causes, you know, hormone imbalance that can, you know, stimulate anxiety or depression. I, I, I uh, some of this is, is uh, professional, some of this is personal as well, because we went through some of what you're describing. Also, Alyssa, we had we had children later, and this was a big topic of discussion. Um, in part, I think because, you know, our, our, our tribe, if you are a community of people, a lot of our friends were similar to us, you know, we, 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 had kids later in life, you know, for, for various reasons and experienced some of these same things. But the idea of the hormonal, the hormonal change in, in a woman's body happening and happening so dramatically at the yeah. time of really at the time of birth, you know, but obviously in the, in the, during the entire pregnancy is really significant. And there just wasn't a lot of data on how that affects women differently at that age versus earlier because women had babies earlier. So this was sort of new and, and doctors were collecting data on the fly. But oftentimes you're just sort of lumped into the same category as I think you were. Uh, it, it, it doesn't sound right. Can happen. That doesn't make sense. Right. But you don't really know because we hadn't really studied it. Okay, as you may know, I love The New Yorker. It holds people in power accountable through compelling storytelling and rigorous reporting. From politics and international affairs to arts, fiction, and of course, their amazing cartoons, The New Yorker covers so many different topics. 
I look forward to reading pieces from their extremely talented writers like Evan Osnos, a Pulitzer Prize finalist, and Doreen St. Felix, who covers the highs and lows of today's culture. So, that being said, I am extremely excited to tell you that The New Yorker is giving my listeners a special offer. You can get 12 weeks for just $6 plus an exclusive New Yorker tote bag. This gives you unlimited access to newyorker.com with 10 to 15 exclusive site-only stories every day and home delivery of the print edition each week. All you have to do is go to newyorker.com slash sorry to save 50%. Again, that's newyorker.com slash sorry. I love drinking coffee and tea, which is why I'm super excited to tell you about Four Sigmatic. Four Sigmatic is a natural superfood company that specializes in mushroom-based drinks that benefit our immunity, energy, and longevity and help us live healthier lives. They make a wide variety of blends, including mushroom coffee, mushroom elixirs, matcha, superfood blends, and more. What is mushroom coffee, you might ask? Well, Four Sigmatic's Mushroom Coffee with Lion's Mane promotes productivity, focus, and creativity. And the best part is that it's coffee without the jitters. Lion's Mane mushrooms have long been used by the Buddhist monks to help with focus during meditation and to clarify, it tastes just like coffee, not mushrooms. So they are offering my listeners 15% off. All you have to do is go to foursigmatic.com slash sorry. That's F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C dot com slash sorry for 15% off. So what do you think that we need to do culturally to shift the the stigma of mental health? Well, I, th- this is a this is a huge huge topic for for me. It's something that we've done a lot of reporting on. Um, and first of all, I think you know we should just acknowledge that that the stigma does exist, right? I think most people sort of get that, but let me just say that it it definitely exists, and and it even exists within the medical profession. It may not exist in the same sort of clear-cut ways that you'd see outside the medical profession, but it does exist within the medical profession, and the way it manifests is is there are, you know, less funding for research studies. Um, there's less interest in people getting promoted who are focused on these areas. There's less uh, focus on searching for new types of therapies for mental health. I think, you know, when something big happens you see uh, you know when you when you look at what's happening with the military and the focus on post traumatic stress as a result of of so many people coming back from these conflicts uh you do get these bursts of 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 resources and and enthusiasm around studying mental health but it still very much exists um what, one thing that i think does help and i think we we have seen it with regard to other things as well, such as um, HIV AIDS, when you started to make real progress in terms of the types of therapies uh, and uh, you saw it to, you started to see some real success, that did dramatically change, I think, people's attitudes towards HIV AIDS. It sounds maybe counterintuitive in some way, but it took starting to have real wins in these areas for culture to change. I'm not saying that that's 
the way it should be. I'm just saying, based on the experience over a quarter century, that's what I've seen. And I think, you know, you, you do start to see some of that in mental health. Uh, we've gotten much better about being able to talk about it. People are much more willing to talk about uh, their own mental health. Um, they're, they're willing to talk about the types of therapies that have worked for them. But oftentimes the media, and obviously I'm, I'm part of that, the only time the media really talks about mental health is in the wake of some tragedy, a school shooting or something. Right. And, and oftentimes it, it just becomes commingled. Yeah. Mental health and and this terrible school shooting and and I feel like I always have to get on television and remind people that people with mental illness are much more likely to be victims of violence rather than perpetrators of violence but you know it it, it can be tough to get that message out when the die sort of gets cast so I think we just it, it exists it exists everywhere including the medical profession and you know we have to do a better we certainly have to do a better job of it in the media <laughs> What is the relationship between mental illness and violence? I think what's important to know is that although the risk is increased, even taken uh, as a whole people with mental illness account for only a very small percentage of the violence in our society. For the record, the vast majority of mentally ill people are non-violent, and the vast majority of gun violence is committed by non-mentally ill people. In fact, mentally ill people are far likelier to be the victims of violence rather than the perpetrators. So the fact we tend to only discuss mental health in a mass shooting context is deeply misleading. But the fact of the matter is, from a standpoint of actual diag diagnosable psychosis by a qualified psychiatrist, the number of um, violent crimes that are committed by mentally ill or psychotic people is relatively small. It's wrong if we're focusing on violence against other people, interpersonal violence, because mental illness actually contributes very little to that overall problem. But it's actually on the mark if we think about suicide as part of the gun violence problem, because two-thirds of gun fatalities are suicides. And two-thirds of these gun deaths are suicides. So we get a lot of attention when, you know, Parkland, something like that happens, but there's a hundred of these gun deaths a day, and the vast majority of these are people who are actually uh, killing and harming themselves. <laughs> I also think we're due for like a shift in the vocabulary surrounding discussing mental health. For instance, you know, it was for a very long time PTSD, right? right. The, the disorder part of it was the part that, you know, people, the stigma was just continued on. And when we dropped the D, which I would like to encourage everyone to, to do when they're talking about it, I think it makes a, a huge a huge difference. Calling it mental health or mental wellness instead of mental illness. Yeah. I think that that's important, especially as we're telling these stories. But I have to tell you, in my experience, and this is something I, I, I want to discuss with you because I think that not a lot of people are discussing this aspect. So at my worst, and I've never said this publicly, but at my worst, mm. I was on benzos every four hours. Hmm. gabapentin, which is a seizure medication, yeah. along with the benzos, and an antidepressant. And so I walked around for many, many years in a fog, wow. truly in a fog. But it was the only thing that could sort of break the siege because I had lived with these panic attacks for so long because my doctor didn't take them seriously. 
that we needed to break the cycle and the pattern of me getting them every single day. Right. And so, so when my son was about, I don't know, maybe, maybe two, and we decided that we were going to try to have another baby, I obviously weaned off the benzos and the gabapentin and stayed on my Zoloft through my pregnancy with Bella. And Bella's incredibly healthy, but the, the anxiety and the panic attacks happened again. The birth triggered them, and I had to go back on the benzos, which was bone crushing. Hmm. And I did that for a, little, for a little bit and tried to get off of them and actually had such a bad withdrawal from them that I had to go to the emergency room. I was throwing up and shaking and literally it was the craziest thing. The doctor said, let's, you know, give you half of a, a Xanax and see if it takes it away. <sighs> and sure, sure enough, 20 minutes after I took the Xanax, I was per- perfectly fine. And the doctor in the ER said, you know what? I don't, I'm not supposed to say this, but I would go get yourself some CBD <laughs> and try to up the dose of your CBD as you're bringing down your dose of benzos. Right. And it worked. I got off the benzos. And right now I'm still on the CBD oil. The only thing that the only pill that I'm taking now is my antidepressant, which is Effexor. And I'm on a very, very small baby dose of Effexor and nothing else. And I credit that to CBD. And I know that you have done a lot of research on marijuana and medical marijuana, and I wanted to discuss your what your thoughts are on how medical marijuana can help with with addiction and maybe the opioid crisis, yeah, and everything that we're dealing with right now. I I I mean, it's changed my life, Sanjay. Well, I I, you know, um, first of all, I mean, it's it's it's. you just shared so much, you know, and it's, I, I, I always wonder for, for someone like you, I mean, cause you're, you're obviously so well known and in the public eye, you hadn't shared some of that stuff before. It must, it must, it's hard for anybody, I imagine, who's, who's dealing with this, but for you, I imagine it was even harder because you, did you feel like you had to hide this? I did. I felt like I, I had a secret, not only because, you know, my family was very supportive, But I was always in fear that I was going to have a panic attack on set and that production would have to shut down and that it was going to be impact my career because it it is so misunderstood. And I just felt like I had gotten to the point where the secret was more, was eating me up more than the actual brain health. So I wrote, I wound up writing an op-ed about it about my experience, you know, with hopes of maybe demystifying postpartum anxiety, but also I think trying to lift some of the stigma that surrounds it. You know, look, if I can go out there and say I'm a totally functional human being, I, I have a bunch of jobs that I all take very seriously that I'm able to do. I am a happy, a happy wife and a happy mother and i try very very hard to take care of my mental health and if i can if i can be that example for people not only would it help lift the stigma but maybe people that are dealing with mental health issues can find hope and reassurance that this is not this is not 
a prison that they have to live in, but something that they just have to find what works for them. Yeah. Well, I mean, it makes it makes such a big difference because I think, you know, um, you, when we do these stories, we just find that for, for a long time, people feel so alone. They don't reach out. They think that they are unique or different in some way. So when somebody like you talks about it, it all of a sudden uh, makes them just realize uh which can be incredibly therapeutic and helpful that they're they're not a, they're not alone and and you know part of that was was the same thing for me with the whole medical marijuana thing and I will and I will preface by saying uh Alyssa you know I I've been thinking about this issue for a long time writing about it um certainly you know from both my worlds from the medical world and the media world and for a long time I I I was not very impressed, frankly, with the data around the use of cannabis as a medicine. Right. What I think what I think I learned, and I think this is really relevant not just to to, to cannabis, but I think to many aspects of our society, is that when I looked at the data and I looked at the the you know what we call PubMed, where a lot of the, the, the scholarly articles are published in science and I looked at the data around marijuana, I would find that most of the studies were looking at some harm that, that, that cannabis was creating. In fact, when I started to dig deeper, I realized that 94% of the studies, and this was over about a 10-year period, were studies that were designed to look for harm. Only 6% were studies that were designed to look for benefit. Yeah. It was an incredibly unbalanced sort of thing. And what that meant to me wasn't that 94% of the time there was harm involved. It meant that the federal government, in this case, had already made a decision right. that this was a harmful substance and we're going to fund studies that continue to prove what we already believe. And so, yeah, I, I have studies. You know, That's what all the scientists would say. Look at the studies. There's really nothing to see here. Go look somewhere else. Well, sometimes you got to look one step further upstream. How did these studies get funded? Who was funding them? Yeah. What were the sort of, you know, hypothesis that were already ingrained before the studies even began? And look, that's a, a topic on cannabis, but I think there's lots of things in our society where if you start to peel back the layer just a little bit more, not even that deep a dive, you start to realize that it's already been prejudiced from the start. And in with with cannabis, I started looking at non-federally funded studies. I started looking at laboratories outside the United States. I started looking at labs that were smaller, that never got the attention that they deserved. And a different picture started to emerge, that not only could cannabis be a medicine that worked, but sometimes it was the only thing that worked. And if that's the case, then it was as much a moral issue as it was a medical issue. How could the only thing that works not be given to people who are suffering that 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 nobody should get behind that no matter what and 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 that's where i think our reporting really went with regard to 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 cannabis as as a medicine overall marijuana activists are hoping pot could be legalized nationwide by the end of 2019 a cbs news poll says that nearly two-thirds of Americans support marijuana legalization. Colorado became the first state to legalize recreational marijuana. Michigan is the 10th state. Lawmakers in Vermont and Maine are working on regulation. Marijuana dispensaries across Nevada are allowed to sell recreational pot. Which is also legal in Washington, D.C. Illinois residents, 21 and over, will be allowed to purchase cannabis. We're going to open our doors uh, and 
process the first public transaction in the state of Alaska for retail marijuana. What have you found it to be most effective in treating? Well, um, there there are some very clear-cut examples that we see. Um, you know, one of the first films that we made called Weed in 2013, we saw the impact that it could have on kids who had refractory seizures, epilepsy. And when I say refractory, I mean these were kids who had tried several different generations of medications, seven or eight different generations of medications, and they weren't working. And they were having 300 seizures a week, and their parents would just sit there and hold them and feel them oh. seize every few minutes and, and, and worry that every time they seize, was this going to be the last one? Would it, would it lead to their death? Mm. And, and they tried all these medications, medications that were known to be toxic to the heart, medications that were known to shorten lifespan. And yet when, when cannabis was suggested that was considered totally radical, right? Wait, right. that's crazy. Right. We would rather give a, a reformulated veterinary medication than try cannabis. True story. I just got um, goosebumps. And then, and, then, and then you found that cannabis works. So refractory seizures was a big one. You find uh, plenty of data looking at certain types of pain, including uh, something known as neuropathic pain, which is nerve pain. It's that burning, lancinating pain that can be very, very hard to treat and seems to be pretty amenable. To, to cannabis as a medicine. There's now very interesting data coming out around post-traumatic stress. There's been two trials that have looked specifically at veterans. There is a, a uh, trial looking at uh, diabetes now. Um, you know, you're, you're, you're seeing true medical applications. And what I think people are sort of really seizing upon is that our bodies come equipped with this endocannabinoid system. It's a system of receptors that are in our body, in our brain, in our gut, that respond exquisitely well to, to cannabis. And so those receptors exist in our body, and they exist for a reason. We humans sort of co-evolved with cannabis. So we were constantly, probably for most of our human existence, we were exposed to this and our receptors were activated by it. And then all of a sudden, you know, we took it away over the last several decades. Um, those receptors exist for a reason. There are people who get tremendous relief from inflammatory bowel syndrome, you know, Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis by taking cannabis. Uh, again, very hard to treat the symptoms of this, and yet a plant really seems to have benefit. We're going to learn a lot more. It's been hard to do the studies in the United States because it is a Schedule One substance, which again means it's preordained as having no medical benefit. Right. It's like the federal government says, hey, it doesn't work already, uh, but you guys can go ahead and try and prove it. But we're going to make it as challenging as possible. Well, it's taken time, but, but that challenge is being overcome, and the studies are now starting to show what people uh, thought they might. And do you think that there is a role that medical marijuana can play in the opioid crisis? I, I absolutely do I think there's a role. And, and this is, look, I, there's, this is a big um, topic of discussion, and there's, you know, I've had plenty of, of um, uh, spirited discussions, I would say, with people about this. But I, I think what really convinced me and and I spent you know close to a year and a half really digging into this when we filmed these these 
you know, these documentaries, before we even start to film anything, we're doing tons of homework and I'm spending lots of time with these researchers and I'm looking at these studies. And I dare say, Alyssa, and, you know, sometimes journalists, because of the nature of our work, we we do deeper digs into these things than just about anybody else. You know, even people within the scientific community, because the scientific community is really focused on a particular aspect. I wanted to look at this very broadly. And here's and here's what I found when it came to opioids in particular. Um, when, when you think about why people are prescribed opioids in the first place for some sort of pain syndrome, if someone's starting to take a prescription opioid, uh, you find that there are many situations, as I mentioned, where cannabis can work instead of opioids in the first place. So that's one area which people started to pay attention to. Does it have to be an opioid, which is linked to overdose deaths and is a very powerful narcotic, or could something that doesn't have the same side effect profile like cannabis work instead, something that hasn't been linked to any overdose deaths? Do you know how many Americans died from drug overdoses in 2017? 70,237. In one year, more Americans died from drug overdoses than died fighting the entire war in Vietnam. And the vast majority of those overdose deaths, about 50,000, were from opioids. People didn't get addicted all on their own. They got a lot of corporate help. They got a lot of help from corporations that made big money off getting people addicted and keeping them addicted. This is part of the reason I am in Kermit today. Here's a town of 400 citizens that got nearly 13 million opioid pills pushed into this town. That's more than 30,000 pills per resident of this town. In Seminole County alone, you know, one of the most affluent counties in, in the central Florida area, you know, we had more than 400 overdoses last year and an unprecedented number of deaths with more than 80 deaths. So if you take, to put it in perspective, if you take every person who has died as a result of a motor vehicle crash or accident and every person who's died at the hands of a firearm, either self-inflicted or through violence, the amount of people who have died from an opioid-related overdose is twice as many as both those vehicle crashes as well as guns. Number two is that, you know, if someone is trying to, to stop taking opioids, part of the challenge is that you really feel miserable when coming off of the opioids. Yeah. Um, you've, and people have described it to me like the worst flu they ever had. All their bones hurt, their muscles hurt. They just feel completely uh, miserable and run down. And it's very similar to the, the sort of people, the way people feel from the side effects of chemotherapy. Well, we've known for a long time that, that cannabis can be effective in, in helping the symptoms of chemotherapy. It's been used for that uh, to allow people to better tolerate their chemotherapy. And in the same way, it seems to be able to help people tolerate the the withdrawal from opioids as well. So that's the second thing. And the, and the third thing I think is is the most interesting and perhaps the most provocative and it's this. Uh what is addiction after all? What how do you think of it? Like what what does it what does it mean to you as a scientist or as a layperson? For for scientists I think we've really really uh 
come around this idea that it is it is a brain disease that the brain is changed in some way in people who are addicts. It could be that their brain was always different, leading them more likely to be an addict. It could be that the substances themselves changed the brain and sort of created a spiral of addiction. Regardless, the brain is changed in some way. And the area of the brain that has changed is really interesting. It's an area in the, in the frontal, the prefrontal cortex. But I think one of the best ways to describe it, it's an area of the brain that is responsible for how you perceive risk. Two people look at the exact same thing, jumping off a bridge. One person says, I would never do that. That is way too risky. I could die. Uh, A second person looks at the same thing and says, you know what? I don't think it's that big a deal. I'm going to give it a shot. How do you evaluate risk? When that part of the brain is affected, people don't seem to be able to estimate risk the same way and become more likely to continue uh, engaging in risky behavior, taking substances, whatever it might be. If you use cannabis and specifically CBD, what these researchers have found, and it's a a woman named Yasmin Hurd uh, in New York who's done most of the research in this area, has found that, that, that CBD can help heal that part of the brain. If you continue to give opioids, even in the form of Suboxone or Methadone, even though they're lower doses and given less frequently, you are still giving an opioid. And her concern has been that that part of the brain doesn't fully heal and that's why you 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 while it may work really well wow the recurrence rate is so much higher from 2010 to 2016 120 percent increase in deaths in the state of new york from opioid addiction that's a stat that we should not allow to exist and not go addressed additionally in places where medical marijuana is available for people who are opioid addicted, there's a 25% reduction in hospitalizations from the use of opioids. Well, this is something that's really important to me that I feel like not a lot of people are talking about, and I just wanted to get your take on it. Can we talk briefly about our water supply in this country and and really how it's impacting the health of our communities? We, we you know, it's it's so interesting that people... Don't pay attention to this issue unless something catastrophic happens, right? And and we've been reporting on water for a long time, and then Flint happens, and all of a sudden, people are thinking, wow, uh, I did not know that we were that vulnerable. And yet, you know, people may not realize something very similar happened as what happened in Flint in, in D.C. Uh, a few years before Michigan. Um, it, it's It's... It's 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 really concerning. We we have spent so much time looking at and and making progress with regard to air, uh, the clean air legislation, uh, some of that legislation that pushed forth uh, our our commemorative Earth Day every year, something that we can see and feel and breathe. But because the water traveling in pipes underground, uh, it, it's 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 more invisible. And I think uh, when it comes to communities not investing in water supply, not investing in protecting the water supply, that becomes a pretty easy one for politicians because no one sees the impact of the right. lack of investment in infrastructure. It's a huge problem. It's, it's a huge problem how much is leaching into our water supply, how little protection there is from the various chemicals that are used in our soil. And that's and just getting worse under this administration. There, there has been such significant deregulation 
under this administration with regard frankly with regard to both air and 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 water and um you know, it's kind of like we've been the victims of our own success. You know, you and I, me for sure, I'm older than you are, but, you know, it wasn't that long ago that the Cuyahoga River was on fire. It wasn't that long ago in L.A. where L.A. was primarily known for its its smog. Um, and and we made a decision in this country that that was not tolerable and that the United being living in the United States meant that we were going to take a stance on these things. And what we're seeing with some of the deregulation now uh, runs the real risk of turning that backwards, leaving aside climate change overall and and what's turning into a crisis, just in terms of the deregulation that's happening right now with regard to air, with regard to water, and its impact on human health is very real. And, and, And people shouldn't ignore it. They shouldn't wait for another flint to, to pay attention to this. It's been almost 50 years since the Environmental Protection Agency was created. But over the last couple of years, there's been these unprecedented rollbacks in terms of environmental regulations under President Trump's leadership. We wanted to understand what does it really mean for the water, for the air that we breathe, for the health of our families. Clean water, open spaces, These should once again be the birthright of every American. If we act now, they can be. By the end of 1970, in response to intense public pressure, President Richard Nixon signed an executive order to create the Environmental Protection Agency. I can remember being in the Oval Office talking to President Nixon about it. He had no choice, and he went after it, and he did a lot. Over five decades, eight presidencies the EPA has always worked towards its mandate to protect human health and the environment. Until now. The EPA is a disaster. It's killing us. Our plan will end the EPA. Our air and water are the cleanest they've ever been by far. He several times said we have the cleanest air and cleanest water in the world. That's just plain demonstrably not true. In a funny way or an ironic way, today we're a victim of our own success. People don't see it anymore. It's not quite as obvious that the air is dirty. I don't even understand why some of the deregulation is happening. Like, if you look at the coal industry, it's not even like the coal industry has necessarily been clamoring for some of this deregulation. It's not like it's going to actually lower prices for, for, for energy for people necessarily. It might even raise them because to, to carry out some of these deregulatory efforts, some of that has a price tag. So I, I don't know what's, what's necessarily driving it, but um, going backwards with regard to some of this is, is, is a real concern. There is the affordable clean energy plan that has been put in place by this administration, which is in contrast to the clean power plan that uh, was put forth by the last administration. Um, it, you know, that was basically abandoned and this new plan was put in place by the EPA's own estimation. And this is this EPA, this administration's EPA own calculations. Um, the, the previous plan would have saved some, you know, thousands of 4,500 lives a year. This plan could actually uh, lead to uh, close to 10, 12,000 premature deaths a year. So they're sort of acknowledging that some of these deregulations will not only 
no longer save the lives that the previous plan put, would, but could actually lead to more premature deaths, Ugh. which is, I mean, it's hard to say that, okay, yes, this is our own calculations. This is what we're finding, but we're going to go for, forward with it anyway. Well, that was thoroughly depressing. On that, I note. know it's it's and it's and it's not really necessary. That that's the thing. It's not accomplishing something, even by the energy industry's own own calculations. Uh, some of these 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 plans have not been something that they've been you know re- really trying to 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 advocate for. So, what's driving it exactly? I don't know. A lot of it's not done yet. So, hopefully, some of this will will. Uh, come under the the realm of of logic and 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 what makes sense to people, but some of these plans have been put forth, um, and we'll have to see what happens. Donald Trump likes to make frequent use of the phrase "witch hunt." It's almost appropriate coming from him, but not in the way he means. Nope, it fits because his administration's nonstop assault on the sciences. Assaults which put all of us very much at risk. They are reminiscent of the Renaissance Church's own attacks on the rational world. And as the self-proclaimed chosen one, Trump has been the chief witch hunter of the 21st century. Science is the foundation on which we build our reality. It's how we discern objective truth from fabrications and understand the world around us. Given Trump's known love for lying, it's no surprise that he hates the methods we can use to disprove his lies. But his attacks on science are already proving catastrophic for humanity. The climate is changing, and it's changing faster than predicted. This is not fake news. This is not propaganda. This simple truth has near-universal backing in the scientific community. Rivers in Alaska are so hot that salmon are dying. Indonesia is building a new capital city because Jakarta is sinking. The hurricanes that Donald Trump stupidly won a nuke? They're coming faster, more often, and stronger than ever before. And the Amazon rainforest, generator of one quarter of our planet's oxygen, is burning at an unprecedented rate attributed to climate change. Science has been telling us this was coming for a generation, and powerful witch hunters and science deniers buried their heads in the sand and just let it happen. Trump appointed an oil lobbyist to head the EPA. Think about that. He appointed a former governor who wanted to disband the Department of Energy to actually head the Department of Energy. But it's not just denial of climate science, which endangers us. Get this. Trump tried to cut $1.2 billion from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. It's kind of an important part of our national health care system at a time when we are running out of antibiotics. His administration banned scientists in the CDC from using words like transgender, fetus, and diversity, and perhaps even scarier, if there could be a scarier, the same list of banned words included science-based and evidence-based. In short, he does not want scientists to be able to discuss science because it contradicts virtually every single part of his deadly worldview. Trump may not live in reality. The greedy corporate billionaires who profit off the denial of science may not either. But the rest of us have to. We're at 
a tipping point. In fact, we may have already tipped. The only chance we have of crawling back out of a hole lies in science. It's time to reject the witch hunters before we're all burned at the stake. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Sim Sarna and Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our supervising producer is Allison Bresnik. It's edited by Josh Windish. Music by Josh Cook and Alicia Eagle. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry Not Sorry. Sorry Not Sorry.